2: Dot com slash sacredtext today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, H-E-L-P dot com slash sacredtext. Chapter 9, Grim Defeat. Professor Dumbledore sent all the Gryffindors back to the Great Hall, where they were joined 10 minutes later by the students from Hufflepuff, Ravenclaw, and Slytherin, who all looked extremely confused. The teachers and I need to conduct a thorough search. I'm Vanessa Zoltan.
0: And I'm Casper Kyle,
2: And this is Harry Potter and the Sacred Text.
0: Hey, Vanessa, do you know what's really underappreciated? My charm. <laughs> no.
2: My wit. My grace.
0: Our newsletter.
2: Oh, it is. I agree.
0: We've only sent out like three. Yes. But we're going to send out more. Yes. You can sign up by going to the website, sacredtext.com, where you can also buy tickets to our live shows and check out our merch store.
2: If you do subscribe, I will tell you what color pants and socks Casper is wearing today.
0: If he's wearing any.
2: <laughs> Sometimes he doesn't wear socks.
0: I always wear pants, even to bed.
2: My junior year of college, I was told that because of my grades, if you had good enough grades, you could go for honors. And the way to do that was either you could write a thesis or you could take graduate level courses in your field. And I was an English major. So you had to meet with your advisor just to pick which one of those things. So I went to my advising meeting and I had like a whole annotated bibliography ready and I went and I was like, I really want to write a thesis. And I'm very interested in the depiction of female depression in the Victorian Edwardian shift in British literature. Mm -hmm. But I was like really interested in this.
0: I am too. I want to learn about it.
2: Yeah. I mean like George Eliot wrote about it very differently than Virginia Woolf. So interesting. Anyway. So I go to my professor and I was like, this is what I would like to do. And this is my little Hermione self. And she said, I'm so sorry, Vanessa, but you actually are not a good enough writer to do honors by thesis. And I was like, oh, I didn't see that anywhere. Do you have to like submit a writing sample? She was like, no, but I would be the one who would have to work with you on the thesis. And I just think it would be too much work. And I was incredibly frustrated by this because I didn't understand how I could be a good enough writer to get good enough grades to be able to apply for honors and not be a good enough writer to write a thesis to do it. And so I I went to the head of the English department because I was like, I want to write a thesis. And if my writing needs help, then I'm in college. Like, teach me how to write better. And he said, I'm sorry, but nobody has the responsibility to teach you that. And it was just it was so frustrating to me that I was in a place that was supposed to teach me. I was being told that I wasn't good enough at something that I want to be good at. And they just refused to teach me. And I think that that's the thing about frustration is that it makes you feel like you have no control over your own life and your own destiny. I still struggle with the same things in my writing that I struggled with 15 years ago, And so I'm interested, Casper, in talking about frustration with you, because I think that often when we're frustrated, it's right where we learn. It's like you're frustrated, you can't figure something out. And then you do through grit and you can persevere. But I also think frustration can be so deeply demoralizing.
0: Ugh, that sounds so frustrating, especially because she was very clear about saying, well, you're not a good enough writer, but then doesn't offer you any way to make that better, which is her job. Ugh. Well, Vanessa, I'll tell you something that you frustrate me with. You're amazing, 30-second recaps.
2: No, you turned it into a compliment there I at the did. end. I did. Okay, how do you feel about it?
0: I'm feeling grim. <laughs>
2: <laughs> On your mark. I'll wait until you're done laughing at your own joke.
0: Okay. It's because the chapter's called Grim Defeat. Oh, I, okay. I get the joke. I just want to make sure.
2: Let me just know when you're done laughing okay. at it. <laughs> Guys, he's still not done.
0: <laughs> okay, I'm ready.
2: I'm just starting. On your mark, get set, go.
0: Okay, this chapter starts with everyone's having like a sleep out in, because everyone's scared and they're sleeping over in the Great Hall um, and then like Harry's secretly listening while they you know, Snape and Dumbledore are talking and Percy's still walking around because he's head boy um, and then um, Snape teaches Defense Against the Dark Arts and is like, you guys are so behind and now turn to page 394 and they learn about werewolves and then there's the Quidditch match and um, Harry's oh no, we're playing Hufflepuff, not Slytherin, so unfair and then the Dementors come and harry uh fools and uh, bad things just one question yeah
2: what role does percy have he's head boy oh you've never mentioned that before so (laughs) thank you for clarifying he's head boy head boy got it
0: what's your 30 second recap you
2: did so well i don't feel like i have anything to add i
0: mean like that's the story of your life (laughs) three two one go
2: Everybody has to sleep in the Great Hall. Dumbledore makes purple sleeping bags appear. Um, Everybody goes and searches everywhere in the house. Dumbledore is like, I don't understand how Sears could have possibly gotten in. Big Quidditch match. Dementors come. Harry hears his mom's voice. He... um, falls off of his broom also there is defense against the dark arts class and snape is like "Mm, werewolves and so then harry's in the hospital wing and it turns out the dumbledore saved him and was really mad at all the dementors but they lost for the first time
0: who oh the dementors lost (laughs) gryffindor oh gryffindor i mean dementors also lost because they were chased away by like massive Patronus gang
1: Is
2: the plural of Patronus Patroni?
0: I just feel like no one is ever going to know the answer to that question.
2: Okay. I'm going to say Patroni for the rest of this podcast.
0: Patronuses. Patroni. We're assuming it's a Latin word because of the U.S. ending, Patronus. Like syllabus. That's right. And therefore, you'd expect it to be syllabi. But, of course, this word could come from ancient Norse or perhaps Hebrew. And therefore, actually, the plural is Patronote. Like haggadot.
2: Yeah, but haggadah, it's not a haggadoos. I'm going to stick with it's alumnus, alumni, syllabus, syllabi, patronus, patroni.
0: Okay, but there are certain Latin words if in the fourth declension they stay with U.S. So I'm actually going to say that the plural of patronus is patronus.
2: Can you give me an example of a fourth declension plural noun in English? Tweet them in, folks. Tweet in English nouns that in their singular form end in US and in their plural form end in something other than I. Because what ends up happening is you start saying us's. Patronuses.
0: Patronuses.
2: That's stupid.
0: So, Vanessa, get us started here with this theme of frustration. Where did it stand out to you in this chapter?
2: So, a silly little moment that I think is very frustrating is Sir Cadugan. So Sir Cadogan, very bravely, is the only portrait in the castle who is willing to replace the fat lady after she's attacked by Sirius Black. But Sir Cadogan is a really annoying guard to the Gryffindor common room. He changes the password several times a day. He's constantly challenging everybody who tries to come into a duel. The students find it very annoying, and I would imagine that I would find this incredibly frustrating. Something as easy as opening the door should be like a perfunctory thing. And if you're going to make that a chore, I feel like it's sort of the equivalent of going from being able to walk really easily to having a cast on. It's like walking is something that you just take for granted. Going in and out of the portrait hole is just something you take for granted, and suddenly it's become this
0: awful chore. Right. But it's in a time of extreme danger. I mean, there's a killer on the loose in the building. And so, sure, it's frustrating to have to carry three forms of ID on you. But like if you're in the middle of a war, things change.
2: First of all, Sir Cadogan gets placed there after they've done the search and they don't think that Sirius is loose in the building. But yes, it is during like a quote unquote trying time. But I know that it's frustrating that even in the middle of a hurricane, you know, I'm like, oh, a lot of people have it worse than I do right now. But it's frustrating that the electricity isn't on here because I can't cook. All of my food is going to get spoiled in my refrigerator. And so
0: I guess what's difficult with Duggan is like he's the only one who's stepping up. So listen, if that comes with having to ask like three or four people to be like, yo, what's the latest password? Is it I fancy Trelawney dot com? someone should make that website, then maybe it's worth doing, you know? I just feel like in this situation when there's been this incredible moment of terror and then courage, the frustration, I guess, over time would grow But in that day or that moment. I feel like we need to forgive Cadogan.
2: Well, and this is maybe one of the uses of frustration. So I think that frustration can call into things that you previously took for granted. So you used to take for granted the fact that you could just walk, you know, but then you broke your toe and it's really hard. You took for granted that you could be running really late and still just run into the common room quickly, grab a book and run away. And so it makes you appreciate like, oh, walking is a real gift and it's really hard to be somebody who can't walk easily. I think that there are gifts to frustration. And I certainly don't think that Sir Cadogan is committing a crime, but I think he's frustrating.
0: That's true. It's like frustration can be an interruption into the routine that makes you either react one way or another. And actually, that's a fun thing to think about. Like, when I'm frustrated, it's because my expectation was different from reality. And now I have a choice how to react. Am I going to be super annoyed or am I going to recognize the gift that at least I've had for a long time that has now been interrupted. Or maybe if I'm caught in the rain, be like, isn't it lovely to be caught in this warm summer rain? And I could be in a country music video if only I didn't have to try and get to the doctor's office in five minutes time.
2: Or if only my computer wasn't in my bag, right? There is risk with frustration because what if one of the students desperately needed to get in quickly for whatever reason? They're cut their finger and they're bleeding and they need to get a band-aid and it's inside and, you know, whatever it is. And Sir Cadogan is like, you knave, you don't know the password. I challenge you to a duel. Oh, you're bleeding? I can bleed too. Like... I think frustration is also a gut check for where you are. If you are in danger, then frustration can really escalate. So if there's somebody driving slowly in front of you and you want to get home because it's been a long day, it's annoying. If there's somebody driving really slowly in front of you and you're in a rush because your partner is giving birth in the back seat, that frustration goes from frustration to anger and a feeling of injustice.
0: Well, and I also think that there's different types of interruptions. Like this chapter starts with everyone is forced out of their own bed. And there's nothing worse than like a fire alarm at 3am. But you know, just that sense of there's nothing more homey than like being in your own bed, being in your own space. And the frustration of being sleep deprived and being forced out of that place is super annoying. And so I think there's something primal about that little moment in the text which I'm surprised at how well they all handle because they're all excited and feel like it's a sleepover and, oh, look, we've got all these sleeping bags. And I feel like the students are handling this very well.
2: Yeah, and they don't seem to be scared.
0: Well, that's because, you know, the head boy and the head girl are patrolling the room. Right. Which also, can we talk about Dumbledore (laughs) just like leaving every teacher out of the entire scene?
2: All the teachers go on the search. I, the reader, find it frustrating that there are no adults in this room. And that Percy and whoever the head girl is are like, don't worry, we're 17, we got it. We got however many hundreds of students are at Hogwarts. And the ghosts. The ghosts are helping. Call for the ghosts. Just to
0: carry messages. Nothing more.
2: But to get back to the like frustration or injustice thing, I think that we really see that when Oliver Wood finds out that Slytherin is not going to compete against them. Yes. So that is obviously incredibly frustrating. The Gryffindor-Quidditch team has been practicing, planning to play against Slytherin, and this totally changes their strategy. But it's also completely unjust. Slytherin just doesn't want to play in this weather. They should forfeit if they don't want to play, right? Like
0: Draco is still doing his, like, I'm dying. I'm dying. Look at me, Spiel. Weeks later, I'm like, Draco... This play is old.
2: And if you
0: have been practicing for
2: something and somebody can just come and completely change the rules, it's somebody taking away the fairness of play. And introducing politics into something that's not supposed to have any politics involved in it. And that, to me, seems, A, frustrating for Oliver because it just, like, throws all of his plans into disarray. B, I think it's frustrating for Oliver at first because he feels alone, like the team isn't going to take it seriously. But I think it's also just this sense of injustice of, like, no, we practiced for one thing and we should get to do that thing, right? I mean – We would be screaming if somebody showed up at the Olympics to, like, do the uneven parallels and they were like, sorry, you got to do a floor routine. Like, you can't just change the rules out of nowhere. I mean, the question is, like, when does frustration become, like, a signal of injustice is happening here? And when is it just, like, my foot is itching and they won't let me unbuckle my seatbelt because we haven't reached altitude?
0: Yeah, it feels like we're discovering different types of frustrations. There's one which is, you know, like your opening story, where it feels like something is really unfair. You're coming up against a structure that won't allow you to do something that seems perfectly fine. There's a second one which isn't injustice, but is just annoying, kind of like Circa Duggan, Or the fact like, I tried to open the door this way, but actually it's a pull door, and there's a sign that says pull, but I was still pushing because I do that all the time. But then there's a third one which is like, actually, these moments of frustration can be real invitations to growth. So it might be when you're pushed just a little further than what you're comfortable with, and you're kind of frustrated at your own inability to immediately meet the challenge. But you can see that it is possible with just a little bit more hard work and effort and time. Sometimes frustration can be an invitation. Do you know what I mean?
2: Oh, absolutely. I feel like, you know, you have to Little kids have to be frustrated, right? If they're going to figure out how to do the puzzle, it, like, has to be frustrating in order for them to figure out. And, I mean, yeah, and if you're trying to get better, at certainly at any kind of sport, you know, if I try to run a 5K in a certain amount of time and I will do run after run, you know, not quite at that time. And then, I mean, it's incredibly frustrating. And then you just push yourself harder and harder which I think to some extent is what we see the Gryffindor team do. I wonder if the fact that they have to practice twice as hard for this match makes them a better team later. I'm not saying that that makes it just, but I think that there might have still been an upside to this frustrating thing, which is that they practiced harder, they got even closer to one another. I do think that frustration can be a constructive thing.
0: You know what the frustration as invitation thing reminds me of? There's a very famous little prayer, which was written by Reinhold Niebuhr in the 20th century, wonderful theologian. It's called the serenity prayer. Some people might know it, but it's got this great phrasing. It just says, God, grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, right? The frustrations I can't handle, the courage to change the things I can, the frustrations where I just need to go a little bit further. And the wisdom to know the difference. So I think he's he's really got something about frustration right here. Like, it's really about what kind of frustration is this? Is this something that I just need to keep working at it and I will get there? Or is this something where I just need to let it go?
2: Okay, yes to all of that. But can we talk about the most frustrating thing that happens in this entire chapter, in my opinion? What's that? Snape's behavior in the Defense Against the Dark Arts
0: classroom.
2: J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award
1: information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com.
2: This week's episode of Harry Potter and the Sacred Text is brought to you by Redfin. Redfin. It's how Molly found the burrow. Download the Redfin app to get started.
0: So tell me what you were thinking about Snape.
2: Oh, the fact that he's in there as a teacher and his goal is not to teach, but to humiliate Lupin and is just trying to embarrass these kids about the fact that they don't know what he thinks they're supposed to know and just torment them.
0: So I feel like we're seeing not the same Snape as we saw with Neville and his Toad a few chapters ago because he's not picking on students here. Like, he is getting his own back at his high school bully. And frankly, if I could have a chance to do that in front of an audience that loved that guy, I don't they hate... Snape for this
2: that's not what he's doing though if he was like hey guys Lupin's not here today let's look at werewolves fine I still think it's disgusting but fine you and Snape could do that that's not what he does he's like what have you guys studied Hermione wants to answer and he's like just ignores Hermione says that she's interrupting calls her an insufferable know-it-all like he doesn't let any of the students talk this he's like not cultivating a classroom experience
0: I mean, of course, you're right. Like, he literally picks up some of their graded papers and says, you got a seven? (laughs) I would have given this a three.
2: But what I do think is interesting is the way that the kids react when they are all frustrated. So the text says that everybody in that room has called Hermione an insufferable know-it-all. But because they are all frustrated, they're like, no, she's not. Don't call her that. And they are all feeling defensive of Lupin. So there is... And I'm not saying we should all be going out of our way to frustrate children so that they feel a sense of camaraderie. But I do think that Snape being so frustrating bonds the Gryffindors.
0: That is very true. And it's the same kind of thing of like, you know, dropping a group of 15-year-olds who might not want to do anything, dropping them like in a forest at midnight on like a survival camp, right? These kind of adventure trips that people have to learn how to survive based on food they find and forage and to make campfires and all of that kind of thing. And it can be a really maturing experience. I don't think that's in Snape's class design. But I do think that there is a natural moment of identity bonding and protection around Hermione. They are closing around the weakest one of the pack and saying no. That's kind of beautiful.
2: It is. And I wonder if they're even doing something one step further than that, which is finally realizing that Hermione knowing a lot can work to their advantage. So it's like, yes, she's an insufferable know-it-all, but also when a substitute teacher comes in and wants to teach from the very last chapter of the book, it sure is nice to have someone in the class who's already read the last chapter of the book. So it might also be the first time that they're like, oh, Hermione's annoying qualities also have a plus side.
0: Yeah, for sure.
2: I think that substitute teachers or just like new people in general are frustrating, which is an unfair thing. It's hard to be the new person in a room. And so I think substitute teaching, that's why it's so intimidating, right? Because you're going into a room with a certain number of rules and everybody is going to circle around each other and the kids have a lot of power in those circumstances. So I do think pedagogically this classroom might be one of the few times that I would actually understand why Snape would go in strong I just think he goes way too far. But I think it's frustrating to be the only new person in a room.
0: Yeah, and in some ways it makes sense that he's actually jumping to another place in the curriculum. You know, he wants to start with a completely new foundation. It's not as if you need to know about banshees in order to know about werewolves, I think. I haven't read the textbook. But, you know, I can understand that. To be honest, I forgive him everything for the great comedic moment of book three, which is... Turn to page 394.
2: Explain to me why that's funny.
0: It's just so funny. (laughs) You know, there's one more place where I see frustration in this chapter. You know, Harry has to deal with so much of the celebrity and the fame throughout these seven books. But in this chapter, because they're also worried about an impending second attack by Sirius, all the teachers find very inane reasons to be near him and to just, like, follow him wherever he goes. I can imagine Harry just being like, guys... I just want to take a leak. Please leave me alone. And there is like Lupin being like, hey, uh, I just got a spot on my hand that I have to wash. You know, he's just like, leave me alone. I get you're trying to protect me. Stop trying to like stalk me in this super frustrating way. You know, when someone's doing something for your own good, but they're like pretending.
2: Oh, yeah. Or I mean, the fact that Percy's following him around to most likely the behest of Mrs. Weasley. It's like an overbearing mother, but it's an overbearing
1: school.
0: So for our spiritual practice this week, we are doing Lectio Divina.
2: Casper, do you mind, before we jump in, reminding us about what Lectio Divina is? Oh,
0: yes, yes. It's built on Guijo II, a 13th century Carthusian monk's idea of how to grow towards God, how to climb up this ladder with various steps. And the first step, we look for a literal reading of what's happening in the passage, what's happening narratively. Secondly, we're going to look for allegories. What other ideas does this remind us of? Stories, images, music even. Thirdly, we're going to think about what experiences have we had in our own lives that resonates? And then finally we're really looking for an invitation from the text. Traditionally, we would ask, you know, what is God calling you to do after this sacred reading? And we ask, what is the text asking of us in this moment? So I'm going to choose a sentence at random. Okay, here we go. In the chapter Grim Defeat, the phrase is, he's a complete lunatic, said Seamus Finnegan angrily to Percy. Can't we get anyone else? What is happening here, Vanessa? He's a complete lunatic, said Seamus Finnegan angrily to Percy. Can't we get anyone else?
2: So Seamus is complaining to Percy about the fact that Sir Cadogan is not good at his job of being the guard of the portrait hole getting into Gryffindor
0: common room. So let's take that second step to start thinking allegorically. He's a complete lunatic, said Seamus Finnegan angrily to Percy. Can't we get anyone else?
2: It reminds me of Macbeth, of the famous soliloquy that Macbeth gives when he's having his existential crisis on the meaning of his life. And he doesn't use the word lunatic, but he uses the word fool and idiot. And so I'm just thinking about the moments in which you use those words. In Macbeth, you know, he says, Tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow creeps in this petty pace from day to day. And then it's, All our yesterdays have lighted fools the way to dusty death. And then again, it's life is a tale told by an idiot full of sound and fury signifying nothing. It's this deep existential crisis. And I wonder if when someone cuts me off and I'm frustrated, I do think that part of that is an identity question. You're like, I don't want to be someone who just lets somebody cut me off. And I don't want to be someone who just gets moved around by traffic and the fate of my day is entirely determined by whether or not there's traffic. So I think that it's in moments of frustration where you sort of like name call in that way in order to label the other person as the oppressor or the mess up so that you still get to be a person in control and your sense of self doesn't have to change. Seamus doesn't want to be afraid of the fact that Sirius is on the loose. And so instead, he's just writing off Cadogan as a lunatic. That's what it reminded me of. What about you, allegorically?
0: The first thought I had was the word lunatic reminds me of asylum. And that so often, especially throughout history, people who were deemed crazy were put behind bars that they literally couldn't leave. And that here, Seamus can't get in. Like, he can't get where he wants to go. There's this connection between lunacy and physically not being free to do what you want, which I think is interesting.
2: So the lunatics have taken over the asylum. Oh. The lunatic Cadogan has been given this role of authority and gets to decide who's let in and who's not.
0: Right. And there's no systematic decision around that. It's totally arbitrary, which you could say who gets to say what's crazy and what isn't.
2: Right. It's a completely constructed idea.
0: Let's take the next step. So now we're starting to think of what does this phrase remind us in our own life. Let me read it one more time. He's a complete lunatic, said Seamus Finnegan angrily to Percy. Can't we get anyone else? Does Seamus
2: say this in front of Cadogan? Can Cadogan, like, hear him?
0: Yeah, I think so. The text indicates that it's happening as he's trying to get in.
2: So, yeah, I'm just reminded of the moments where there's one in particular where I could hear someone talking about me through a wall. And how awful it is. And the funny thing is, is that I knew she wasn't saying anything I was surprised by. And she's still one of my close friends because she had subtextually said it to me. And it's still just so wounding to hear them say it to somebody else, even though we all talk about each other. Right. And I think it's important to talk about each other in order to process things so that you don't say what a lunatic to somebody's face. Right. But just how hurtful it is to talk about people behind their backs and certainly to overhear it. Like, poor Cadogan. I know he's annoying, but I can't feel good to be called a lunatic. What about you, Casper? What did it remind you of?
0: The thing that it really reminds me of is when I'm really annoyed that something isn't working and I want it to work and how rude I can be sometimes. You know, sometimes when you're like, getting interrupted by a phone call trying to sell you something. I don't mean to be rude, but like I can be very short with people. Or if you're like trying to fix something and the helpline isn't working, you've been waiting for like 23 minutes. It's not the fault of the person at the end of the phone. And like, I really have to work hard to not be a jerk. And I think Seamus is kind of failing that right now, because like you said, he's saying this right in front of Sika Duggan, who's doing a good thing. Yeah, it's just reminding me that sometimes I can be pretty rude when I shouldn't be. I mean, this is taking me right into step four, really, which is what are we called to do by this text? And I feel like that's what it's asking me. It's like, next time I'm in one of those situations where I could really be frustrated and not remember my manners, Seamus, take it outside. (laughs) Mention it elsewhere. Like, have some respect. Sucker Duggan's doing a good deed. How about you, Vanessa?
2: I feel called to, like, not take insults like that seriously. I feel like people call me things. My students, I'm sure, get very frustrated by me and some of our listeners every once in a while get frustrated. And Sir Cadogan is doing a good deed and he's being himself and he's not harming anyone. In fact, he's helping. And I don't know, I maybe I need to be a little more cadogan and be like, yeah, this is me and deal with it and Cadogan does not seem like someone who cares what other people thinks. And that is always something I have to remind myself of.
0: I like that. This week's voicemail is from Cameron Kessler on forgiveness. And actually, we got so many interesting voicemails on this theme that we're probably going to do a little special outpost coming soon.
1: Hi, Vanessa and Casper. This is Cameron from Austin, Texas. Your podcast on forgiveness came out the day after I witnessed the attacks that occurred on the University of Texas campus this week. I really needed to hear that discussion, especially the fact that forgiveness is for the forgiver. I've been thinking about the idea of forgiveness since, and I would like to throw out an observation I've made about the attack, which is that it seems easier to forgive individuals than it is to forgive institutions. I feel like, in time, I will be able to forgive the attacker, but... Right now, it feels really hard for me to imagine a world where I can forgive the university. They mismanaged the situation and made students feel even less safe during the attacks and on campus in general by withholding information. This immediately made me think of Hogwarts. Traumatic events happen every year, almost, at Hogwarts, but the students keep coming back because Hogwarts handles them with grace and with the students' best interests at heart. In contrast, when the ministry begins to make huge mistakes in handling incidences, Harry loses his trust in the ministry permanently. This is so different than Harry's ability to forgive Snape, a man who abused him for years. This makes me think that, because institutions like a college campus or a government body have more responsibility to a person, and specifically the responsibility to keep them safe, when they fail to do this, it becomes harder to forgive than an individual person. I'd love to hear your thoughts on this. Thanks, y'all. Your podcast is really helping me through this time.
2: First of all, Cameron, thank you so much for sending in this voice message. And I'm just so sorry for everything that happened on campus that day. I think I agree with you that it is harder to forgive institutions rather than individuals. And I think that that's because we forget that in part, institutions are made up of individuals. I think that because institutions also have culture and tradition, they can be like a massive ship that's hard for even the best crew to turn. And I'm really glad that the podcast could be part of you trying to suss out this thing that seems to me so complicated.
0: You know, it reminds me, Cameron, of the episode on Mercy that we did where we talked about how, you know, you can be merciful as an individual, but you can't really be merciful as a as a state or as an institution. And maybe what you're illustrating is that it works the other way too. Like you can much more easily forgive an individual rather than an institution. So I'm I'm grateful for you sending this in and I, I hope you and, uh, and all your friends are doing okay. Vanessa, it's time to bless someone. Who are you blessing this week?
2: I am taking a page out of your book, Casper. So I am gonna bless Minerva McGonagall and I'm gonna bless her for what I consider to be a mistake that she makes. So it is her job to teach and protect children. And she pulls Harry aside to inform Harry that he is not going to be allowed to practice Quidditch at night anymore because Sirius Black is trying to kill him and it's dangerous. And with, like, two lines of pushback from Harry, McGonagall says, I really would like Gryffindor to win. Fine, you can practice. I'll have Madame Hooch watch you. So I would just like to make a blessing for those of us who, for selfish intentions, do things that are not best for the people who we should be taking care of. And, you know, these are honest mistakes, but Minerva in this moment should have had someone whispering in her ear that what matters is Harry's safety and not the Quidditch cup. I feel like that weakness in her needs a little bit of a blessing. So what about you, Casper?
0: My blessing is for Dumbledore. He is so amazing, the moment when the Dementors invade the pitch. I feel like we see a hint of Dumbledore's power when he sends the Patronus to clear off the pitch and push the Dementors away, and at the same time, rescue Harry as he's falling to the ground. And so I just want to bless people who are, like, stepping into their power. If you have this thing to do and you need to really stand up for yourself or someone else, like... This blessing is to you and the great power that lives within you. So, a blessing for you.
2: You've been listening to Harry Potter and the Sacred Text. Be sure to go to our website in order to sign up for our newsletter, buy tickets for our live show, follow us on Twitter, Instagram, Tumblr, and Facebook, leave us reviews on iTunes, and please, when you send us your voicemails, tell us a story. We would love to hear about the way the Harry Potter books have impacted you. Next week, we will be reading Chapter 10, The Marauder's Map, through the theme of escape.
0: This episode of Harry Potter and the Sacred Text is produced by Ariana Nedelman, Kasper Kyle, and Vanessa Zoltan. Our music is by Ivan Paisau and Nick Boll, and we are part of the Panoply Network. You can find ours and other great shows on panoply.fm. Thanks this week to our crowdfunded donor of the week, Crookshanks, Thanks to Cameron Kessler for this week's voicemail, Rebecca and Charlie Ledley, and always to Stephanie Purcell. We'll see you next week. And I have to say, I'm noticing that our 30-second recaps are becoming less competitive and more collaborative. And I feel like that is a good thing for the world.
2: (laughs) For the whole world?
0: It's like a little daily activist thing. (laughs)
2: Really, to the world or to the galaxy?
0: I mean, just this galaxy? <laughs> or a galaxy far far away?
1: Okay, you go first. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus...